Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, September the 5th, 2023. It is currently 5.15 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, on Sunday, Sunday morning to be exact, the Sunday school hour at Victory Baptist Church located in Ovalo, Texas, we began a brand new series on dispensationalism. Now, to be fair, I think it was on Saturday that I did kind of a preview of the series. It was called Dispensationalism Preview, I believe. We did kind of a preview of the series. But officially, the official beginning was Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour at Victory Baptist Church. I stood behind the pulpit and I begin to introduce really in detail the entire series on dispensationalism. We did three plus hours of teaching on dispensationalism on Sunday alone, and the response has been very encouraging. I have gotten a lot, a lot more emails I've gotten about dispensationalism than I got on Jeremiah, right? I did 70 plus hours of teaching on Jeremiah. And I've, I think I've received more emails in regards to dispensationalism with three hours of teaching than I did for 70 hours of teaching in Jeremiah. That, that could be, is that a, is that a good thing or is that, is that discouraging? I don't know how you look at it, but I've gotten a lot of emails and a lot of comments in regards to what we have started on the subject of dispensationalism. So I am encouraged by that. Now, I'm a little cautious, right? Because I think some people are like, yeah, he's going to prove this or yeah, he's going to demonstrate this. Like, I think they're going in with a particular perspective. And I've tried to warn all of you that whether you're pro-dispensational or whether you're anti-dispensational, I'm going to offend both sides. I'm going to offend everyone because I don't like to approach these things with I'm on team this or I'm not on team this. I'm going to go this to prove this or I'm going to go this to condemn everyone who's against. No, I'm going to go and we're, and we're just looking at this from a historical perspective and we're looking at it almost like here is a theological hypothesis. Here it is. We're going to test it. We're going to challenge it. I may agree with some and I may disagree with some. And guess what? I have that prerogative because I'm not bound by a team. I'm not committed to a team. So I, I, I know there's going to be a lot of excitement at the beginning, but when we get further and further in, I'm just going to start losing people because I'm not going to support your team. But I, I reject that whole mentality that so is ingrained in the minds of many Christians. They pick a theological system and that is their team. And anything that goes against their team is immediately cast aside because you must conform or you will be cast out to quote a popular lyric from a famous song. Okay, but I won't go there. But so I know before this series gets far, it's going to end up, a lot of people are going to be against me, but that's how it always works, right? Because I won't play nice with the systems. I, I, I don't feel, I, I, I think there's a problem in the American church that as much as we say the Bible is the authority, what really is the authority is our theological system that we then take the system, we lay it on top of our Bible, 
And then we claim we're doing exegesis. We claim it. We, we even know the right words. We're exegetical. We do exegesis. We don't do eisegesis. We don't read into the text. We pull from the text. We, we know all the right words. We know all the cliches. We know all the talking points. But the reality is we take our theological system, we lay it on top of our Bible, and then we read into the very scriptures that we claiming we're exegeting. We read into them, which is eisegesis, we're reading into them our theological system. And our theological system becomes, becomes I, I hate to say this, it becomes the determining factor in our hermeneutic. It becomes the guiding principle in our exegesis. It becomes your theological system. And we, we went through all the history of, we, we went all the way back to the Reformation. We went all the way up to the printing of the Schofield uh, Study Bible. We talked about so much. Please go back and listen to part one, part two, part three. Listen to the preview, part one, part two, part three. That will give you four hours of context. But because of all of this feedback, I want to at least address the, an email I received because I think they they give us something to consider. But let's do this. This is very, very important, right? Whether you're a dispensationalist, whether you're covenant theology, amillennial, premillennial, lordship, non-lordship, whatever view you hold, that is a theological system. And whether you like to believe this or not, it greatly imposes itself on your exegesis. And in many cases, you're not actually exegeting the text as much as you claim you are. You, because guess what is controlling? Guess is what, guess what is guiding your hermeneutic? It is your system. Now, some theologians will just admit it. Hey, our, our theology should guide our hermeneutic. And I disagree. I believe your hermeneutic should guide and, pres- and, and give you your theology. But we typically, in, in Christianity, whether it's Bible college, seminary, or whether it's sitting in the pew, you typically are taught a system, whether the system is named or not. Here's what you should believe about this. Here's what you should believe about this. And oh, look, here's three scriptures that support it. And then you're like, well, of course, yeah, those scriptures prove my point because you're looking at the scripture through the lens of your system. So I reject this idea that your theology should guide your hermeneutic. I reject that. I think we come to the text and we have to lay aside our theological systems, our theological presuppositions. And we look at the text and we're like, what does the text say? And guess what? It may agree with the theological system. It may not. And you know what? Who cares if it agrees or disagrees? Because you shouldn't be committed to the team of your, that, you know, the theological team that you've aligned yourself with, you know, take off the jersey Take off being the fan of the theological system. That is not what should guide your hermeneutic. And you just try to figure out the text based off basic hermeneutical principles. Words, definition of words, context, syntax, historical background, just on and on and on and all the basic, basic concepts. That's what we should do, but it's very hard to do that. Now, since we started talking about dispensationalism, I argued it's a system and the dangers of systems, as I just articulated, or whether you're not dispensational, you still have a system and that same danger is there. Well, kind of in light of that, on September the 4th, at 1141 p.m., 
I received an email that says, and I'm going to correct this. They say the back to the Bible broadcast of McGee. It's not back to the Bible. It's through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee aired on Monday for September, 2023. So he's, he is referencing an episode of the through the Bible radio program slash podcast. Now, remember, Dr. J. Vernon McGee spent, you know, he would go through the Bible every five years. That, that was his whole ministry. Just go through the Bible, go through the Bible, go through the Bible. And of course, that was broken down into radio uh, broadcasts. Those radio broadcasts still air on some radio, Christian radio stations, but now they air as a podcast. So you can subscribe to the Through the Bible podcast and every day you'll get a new episode. That was, that was you know, one of the radio uh, episodes that aired in the past and still airs today. Dr. J. Vernon McGee has you know, obviously passed on many years ago, but his broadcast remains. So they are, represent, they are referencing the Through the Bible broadcast and the episode that aired on 4 September 2023. And they say this, that this episode provides a good example of how a system, a theological system, such as dispensationalism, governs interpretation of the scripture. So he says, hey, you've been talking about how systems govern interpretation. Here's an example of it. And it's an example of how dispensationalism does it because Dr. J. Vernon McGee, basically what they are claiming, uses his dispensational system to interpret some scripture. The next part of the email reads, in the broadcast, Dr. J. Vernon McGee even admits the fact and in it he claims that Psalm 43 speaks of, I'm not going to tell you what it speaks of. And he, and he says, of course, McGee would do this because he's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and Schaefer, co-founder and first president of Dallas, was associated with Schofield. Right. Obviously, Dallas Theological Seminary is very much known for its dispensationalism. There's no way to get around that. I mean, clearly it is. So they say this is an example of that. So I thought, even though we're still in the middle of our, and we're going to be in the middle of this series on dispensationalism for a long time, we would do kind of a, one of these little special broadcasts just to, to supplement what we're doing and say, hey, I spent hours talking to you about this problem of how one's theological system becomes really the guide to your hermeneutic. It becomes your hermeneutic. And you're claiming to be doing exegesis, but in reality, you're doing eisegesis and you're reading into the text. So I thought since this supposedly is a great example of it, guess what I did? I hopped on the old internet, the old interwebs, and I went searching and I found the broadcast. I have downloaded the broadcast. I have it queued up. And ladies and gentlemen, we're going to listen to the whole thing and we're going to see exactly how this is possibly, according to the emailer, a great example of how a system such as dispensationalism governs interpretation of Scripture. And I'm arguing no system should govern your interpretation. That is what I'm claiming. I know many will disagree with that, but that's okay. I, I, I don't want to, I have no allegiance to a system. No adherence to a system. I love the systems because to me, they provide 
and a hypothesis. They provide a, a thesis on, on what they think should be done with the text. I got no problem comparing what I'm doing with what they're doing. And I think we should compare it and we should know all the systems. We've got to just make sure those systems are not guiding us in the interpretation of scripture. It should be basic hermeneutical principles that should govern it. All right. Now, you could agree, you could argue that even within hermeneutics, there's hermeneutical systems. There are. And then you have to determine, okay, which one of these systems violate basic principles of how you would interpret anything that is written. And then that's a whole different conversation, but we could, we, we could approach that at some other time. But for now, we're going to do this. Now, here's the rules, just so that you remember. When we review things, I don't listen to it first. Because, see, I could have taken the email, then I could have listened to it, then I could have formulated how I wanted to approach it, then I could do the broadcast. But I don't like doing that, right? Because then anything I say comes across as rehearsed. It comes across as as a performance. Now, what you're going to hear is my real-time reaction in real, my real, well, well, my real-time reaction. It's because I haven't listened to it beforehand. Now, that means it's going to be raw, and it means I may I may say something, and then five seconds later, he says something, okay, well, never mind, forget what I just said. But it, it makes it more real, and it gives you the idea. What I'm trying to create is that you drove by, you're like, what are you doing? I'm getting ready to listen to this message that someone sent me. Okay, can I listen with you? Yes. And we listen hit pause, talk about it. Listen, hit pause, and talk about it, right? Sounds fun? I think so. I look, I used to love doing that when, when I, when, you know, anytime I could have people around who wanted to listen to sermons, grab a Bible, a notebook, let's listen to some sermons, hit play, pause, let's talk about it, hit play, pause, let's talk about it, hit play, pause, talk about it. I love that. So now I just can do it with people around the world. So Hopefully you're ready to go, all right? You can always email me your thoughts about anything we have to say. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I don't know how this is going to go. Now, to the emailer, if for some reason I disagree with you, don't get offended. And if for some reason when it's over, I'm like, uh, I don't know if that really was a good example or not. Don't get offended. But because I'm doing this in real time. So I may see what you, I may hear what you heard or I may not. But I, I, but one way or the other, I know this. We're going to have a good time, hopefully, and learn some scripture and see where this goes. Does that, does that sound good? I I hope it sounds good. I hope it sounds good. All right. I think we're going to, we're, we're about to begin. And uh, hopefully this will be beneficial. Hopefully this will be beneficial. All right. Here we go. To everyone listening, I, I, I get a map now that I can see where people are listening from. I, I promised myself that I wouldn't pay attention to it too much. But for the people listening to us in North Carolina and the people listening to us in Indiana and the people listening to us in Texas, thank you so much for tuning in. I greatly appreciate it. All right. Now, now are you ready? All right. I think so. I'm going to check my email. Okay. I've already read that email. Let's make sure nobody has sent me anything else. Okay. I think we're good to go. If you have a Bible... Grab it, open it up to the book of Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm, I think it's 42 to 44, 42 to 44. And somewhere in this, supposedly, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, his dispensationalism is going to guide his interpretation of Psalm 42 through 44. Let's see if we can agree that he is using his dispensationalism. And then let's try to, and then what we'll try to do is try to get ourselves to set aside dispensationalism or covenant theology or any other system 
and see where we would end up and looking at this text without any theological presuppositions. I don't know if we'll be able to do that, but we'll try. So here we go. And, and, and typically when I review Dr. J. Vernon McGee uh, audio, I just pull it from, because I have all of his audio without the radio program, because they said I could use all of his content and they gave us rights to use it. In this particular case, I'm not doing that. And the reason why is the emailer is referencing specifically the radio program slash podcast. So I pulled it from the podcast. So it's going to have their music intro, their host. They're going to have all of that. And we're just going, we're going to use all of it. We're going to just use all of it. So you're going to get a little extra here. So we'll see where this goes. All right. Are you ready? Ladies and gentlemen, without any further delay, let's see how Dr. J. Vernon McGee interprets Psalm 42 through 44, possibly through the lens of his dispensationalism. And let's see if this is a good example of what I've been warning everyone about, how we cannot let our theological systems guide our hermeneutic. Is this an example of it? There may be disagreement, but that'll be the fun part of this. You can tell me whether you agree or disagree. So here we go. Passion, longing, faith. These are a few of the things that we'll see in King David today as our study of the Psalms continues on through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, and while you hop aboard the Bible bus and find your place in Psalm chapter 42, here's a quick reminder that our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, liked us to share on occasion. From time to time, it was my custom to state the policy of the Through the Bible radio program. And it's time again for it to be stated. I would like to do that. It has never been our plan or purpose from the very beginning to use high-pressure methods. We do not send out junk mail. Everyone that's on our mailing list got there because they asked to be put there or else Someone asked for them. We today believe that if you are not able to support the program and you want our notes and outlines, that God will raise up somebody down the street or over in the next town to send in enough for you and for them also. We believe that the real test is the support that comes from any area. Okay, so this seems to be, I don't know what year he did this, but it seems every so often he would have to come on and do the unpleasant task of talking about support. Now, I I do understand this to some level. Now, once again, I always think as much as possible, and I've always said this, that I've never quite understood in theory why many of these radio programs 
whether I don't care if it's MacArthur, I don't care who it is, why the radio program wasn't is not supported by the church. Like MacArthur, grace to you, the church should support the radio program. But if you look into the financials, the radio program gets their own donations. Like in like over, I mean, I don't, I won't even get the numbers that I've seen, but they're, I mean, crazy amounts. And you're like, well, wait a minute, they, his church brings in this. Like, why is it two separate entities? Now you could argue. You, I, I, you could argue there's good and bad in that. The good is, well, if, if it's your radio program, it's your broadcast. Well, if you're no longer the pastor of that church or if that church goes away, well, now your program is financially able to stand on its own, right? You can still continue your ministry. If it's so tied to the church, then in a sense, it belongs to the church. So when you're no longer a part of the church, then they own the program and they own the content. So you could see maybe some benefits of separating them, right? You, you, could, you could possibly think about this. But the, the sad reality is this. No matter who the minister is, no matter who the, what the program is, it costs money to broadcast, it costs money, time, and effort to produce the broadcast. And sadly, at some point, you do have to just ask yourself, is there enough support for this? And if there's not enough support, you have to start questioning what you're doing. You really, you have to just ask yourself, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe this is not really working. Maybe this is not really working. And in their particular case, he had to look specifically at the region where the support was coming from. Because if the support is not coming from this area, in most cases, a lot of people don't know this, and, and, and a lot of cases, you pay to be on the Christian radio station. Now, some Christian radio stations don't charge the ministries to be on there. Some do, right? When we were on Christian radio, we had to pay, I think it was a monthly fee or it was a weekly fee, to be able to air on their radio station, right? We had to pay them. So, um, and so, and of course the listener, you're just getting it for free. You just hear content or uh, when you're a pod, when you're listening to podcasts, you just see content and you hit play, but you have to pay to get your content on many of those platforms. You have to have a podcast hosting site you, where we do live broadcast. So I know what this is like. It's always frustrating to have to do this. He's obviously every once in a while, they would play this message where he's like, Hey guys, you know, basically we try to do everything we can to give you everything we can for free. But if we're not getting some support, we don't exist. And, you know, it's the same with this broadcast. If we don't get the support, I, you know, how long how long does it exist? We have to have support in order to, to ultimately exist, especially if the day comes where the, ch- my, the church is no longer there, then this will this will live or die by you. And, and, and it's crazy because really all you really need is. I can't speak for his, what he needed. I don't know what he needed, but I know for me, if, if just, if we just had most of our listeners, if we, even if we had like 30 or 40% of our listeners, 30 or 40% give $5 a month, we probably would be okay. And you'll notice that many podcasts, if you, if you use the Apple podcasting app and you look at many others, you'll notice many of them have subscriptions now where they put certain content behind a paywall. You have some Christian ministries who will put uh, content behind a paywall. Why? Because they have to find a way to get people to support it. I don't ever want to put anything behind a paywall or they have to monetize. You know, I, I get emails every day from our podcasting hosting site. Monetize your podcast. Monetize your podcast. Monetize your podcast. Well, then I have to put commercials at the beginning, have to put commercials at the end. And if I really want to make some money, I got to put commercials in the middle. I don't want to put commercials anywhere. I could be making money, right? 
But but then guess what? I could offend a sponsor and then I would lose then all of my ad revenue because I said the wrong thing. It's better when it comes to a theology podcast, having the people who who are who benefit from it show that they appreciate that their the benefit they've received from it by giving. And so he that's what he's doing. And so I I understand this. I, I don't think any I don't I th- there's always I think I can't say it. I think there's there is maybe it's split. I think there's some broadcasters who it doesn't bother them. They're just like, hey, I'm broadcasting. You want this, you support it. You don't support it, it goes away. They're just very they don't have a problem being blunt. And I think there's others that are kind of like, oh, guys, maybe maybe you could think about it, maybe. And and they're more uh, apprehensive. He sounds more apprehensive here. Still doesn't get us to the dispensational part, but I just thought it was interesting because I think I I don't think I've ever heard him do this. So this must have been something they only did ever once in a while. And we will not continue on a program if we do not get a reasonable amount of support. Okay, well, there you have it. He's pretty direct. Hey, look, we have to look at the areas that are supporting us. And if you're not supporting us, then the program's going to go away in your area, probably because he has to pay to be on those radio stations. So, hey, we got to pay money to be on a radio station in whatever state. And if we're not going to be supported, we'll pull it from that station. We'll pull it from that area. And that's, don't you hate that? Now, I know people say, well, you should not do that. Well, what do you want them to do? It costs money. It costs money. Like sometimes I wish people who listen could see that, right? It costs money. I, I wish every time when one of our bills come in for, for Sermon Audio or for Spreaker or for PodPage or for whatever, I wish sometimes people would be like, they could see that. Like I get a bill. It's got to be paid. Or guess what? The program goes, <laughs> it's gone. It's deleted. So um, yeah, I... I I feel you, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I feel you. I feel. You. I wish. I wish ministry could always be free. Don't you? I wish it didn't cost a dime, and I wish there were no bills, and I didn't have a house, uh, a mortgage, and I didn't have, you know, electricity and internet, and, and and you know, I didn't have, you know, to buy food. I I wish I didn't have to do any of that. Then it would be great. It would be great. But there we go. All right, let's continue. And we always give every station a fair opportunity to see if it's going to pay for itself. And that, by the way, is all that we ask. We do from time to time appeal to you to support our foreign broadcasts. After all, we cannot ask them, uh, that is, the Chinese or the people of India or the people of South America or the people in Russia support our program. We believe that there are enough folk in this country that are interested in getting out the word over iron curtains, under bamboo curtains, and through the curtains of indifference and sin today uh, to get the word of God out to the world. So we just let you know this and trust you'll understand that we do need your support, though we will not violate our rule by using high-pressure methods. All right, there you go. He, uh, I, I look. I understand. I, I mean, there, there's a part of me I wish that wasn't a part of it. I mean, have you ever turned on your uh, local Christian radio station and they're doing their fall 
telethon, their, their fall fundraiser, where they dedicate three or four days, hour after hour, saying, hey, please call now and donate $10, $15, 20 Well, thank you for that call from North Carolina for $5. And, well, they got to raise money or they go away. It's just, it's, ugh, I hate it. It makes it. It so ruins it for me. It so ruins it for me. But I, at the same time, I understand. I understand because I think every day, what happens if if, if this this internet ministry primarily is supported by Victory Baptist Church? If Victory Baptist Church goes away, or if I'm no longer the pastor, can I still do a theology podcast? Would, would people actually support it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I have no way of knowing. I, 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 I would hate to be there. I would hate to be there. But there you go. So there's his discussion. Now, from that, they did their little transitioning music. Boom, right? And now we get to Psalm 42 through 44. And what we're looking for is the whole, how his dispensationalism impacts his interpretation of it. So now we can, we get that set aside. We can jump in. Find out how you can provide a tank of gas or an oil change for the Bible bus by calling 1-800-65-BIBLE or visiting ttb.org forward slash give. Now let's pray and get moving. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use the teaching of your word to draw us near. Like David, may we be filled with passion and longing and trust in you, our rock. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Here's our study of Psalm 42 through 44 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now today, friends, in our study in the book of Psalms, we are coming to an entirely new section. Many of you will recall that at the beginning of the book of Psalms, in the introduction, I mentioned the fact that the book of Psalms can be divided like the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Bible. And we have been through the Genesis section. The first 41 chapters or 41 Psalms were the Genesis section. And those were the Psalms in which you had those wonderful Psalms of creation. Psalm 8 especially, a great Psalm of creation. And then there were other great Psalms of creation that we had and Psalm 19, and it had to do with man at the beginning, the blessed man, the last Adam, actually in Psalm 1, and then God's ultimate purpose of bringing his king to the throne. What a lovely section the first was. Now we come, beginning with Psalm 42, and going through Psalm 72, we come to the Exodus section. Okay, now this is an interesting approach. Do you believe that the book of Psalms is broken down like the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, right? He believes Genesis 1 to 41 is the Genesis section, and then starting in chapter 42, I think he said to 70-something, is the Exodus section section. Do you think that that works or do you think that that is being forced upon it? Do you think that the Psalms have a natural 
division there that would require you to place these into groupings? Hey, this is the Genesis. This is the Exodus. Do you think that's a man-made system being imposed upon it? Or do you think the text kind of screams out for that? I, I, you, you can, you can, you can, you can give me your thoughts there. Remember, the whole goal here is to look at how these systems in, impact interpretation. I, would that, would that have a profound impact on your interpretation if you broke down the book of Psalms like the first five books of the Bible, like the Pentateuch? Like if you have a Genesis section, an Exodus section, a Leviticus section, a Numbers section, and a Deuteronomy section, would that impact how you interpret it? And so that would be guiding your interpretation? Or it just helps you maybe just place it in some kind of structure. Only you can determine that. But we're looking to see how his dispensationalism may come into play here. So here we go. Now, we are going to find here, as you do in the beginning of the book of Exodus, you have God's people in a strange land, away from the land of promise. They are suffering people the iron heel of a dictator's over them. You hear them groan and moan, and you hear the whip of the taskmaster falling upon them. They are in great trouble. And instead of decreasing, it increases. And finally, their cries and groans are heard, and the Lord arises on behalf of his suffering people. And so he makes good his covenant that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then the Lord delivers them out of the land of Egypt. Now you have that in this here. These Psalms that we're coming to now, the first of them, for instance, the first seven Psalms, 42 through 48, we find the same conditions, but it hasn't anything in the world to do with the past. It looks yonder into the future. And it reveals the future experiences of the remnant of Israel. And we're going to see them. They're away from Jerusalem. They're away from the holy place. They're out of touch with Jehovah, just as they were in Egypt. Okay, so immediately, okay, we got to follow this. So this is the Exodus section, 42 and following. He says, This section shows basically Israel being in captivity, being bondage, the Babylonian captivity, maybe under Assyria, and so that they're suffering. Then he says 42 through 48, though, he says, goes beyond what they were suffering at the time, I guess, of Babylon or the Assyrians. And it looks to the future. They are away from Jerusalem. So is it looking to the future like past 70 AD, between 70 AD and 1947? Is that, is that, is he saying it's prophetic? So he, he now just, I, I, this is a major assumption that 42 through 48 is, is, is it prophetic or is it historical? Was it, was it assigned a to Israel, to those who originally read it? Hey, this is what's coming. You think it's bad now, but these next seven Psalms are going to show you how bad it's going to be. Now, is that his dispensationalism coming into play there? What is leading him to look at this as referring to something future, not as something presently happening at the time? So 
let's see how he pulls this out because once again is this is this the text driving this or is he using a system to read into it which is what we keep talking about in this ongoing series on dispensationalism let's see how he handles this and this is something you might not note ordinarily just reading them there is the first section we had the emphasis upon jehovah the name of God. And in this section, it'll be Elohim. And why was it? Let me put it like this. We have here in... Now, wait, I'm confused. If the first section is the Genesis section, but you say the emphasis is on Jehovah, this section is the Exodus section, but the emphasis is on Elohim. Doesn't Genesis begin with Elohim and not Jehovah? So I like I, see when you impose these cool little divisions that people can write down in their notes. Everyone loves that when they listen to us. Hey, the Book of Psalms is broken down like the Pentateuch. This is the Exodus section or Genesis section. This is the Exodus. This is the Leviticus. And everybody writes that down. And go, oh, Pastor, that's so good. But then if he turns around and says, well, wait a minute, the first section is the Jehovah section, and and the Gen- the, the Genesis section is the Jehovah section. And the Exodus section is the Elohim section. Well, that seems to make no sense because wasn't Elohim the primary n- name used in Genesis? And was when when is Jehovah introduced? Is it introduced in, in, in Genesis? See, now, if I was at church, I would make everyone stop right here and I would have make everyone figure this out. When, was the, when is the first time Jehovah used? Is it, it used in Genesis? But I know Genesis begins with Elohim. So if I was going to say it's the Genesis section, you think the Genesis section would be then the Elohim section and the Exodus section would be the Jehovah section, right? Wouldn't that make more sense? I, I, I don't know. You, you, you can maybe, see, when you break these sections down, it sounds good, but how, how much do they actually hold out the more you start talking? So, all right, here, here we go. So he wants, so Elohim becomes important. I, I believe, he believes in this section. The first section, the Genesis section, Jehovah occurs 272 times, and Elohim, the name for God, only 15 times. Now, when we come here to the Exodus section, Elohim occurs 164 times, and Jehovah only 30 times. Now, why would that be? Well, Jehovah is his name of redemption and the one who keeps Israel. They're away from God, you see, down yonder in the land of Egypt. And they'll be away from God in the great tribulation period. The first. Whoa, well, wait a minute. Now he just jumped to the great tribulation period. What is going on? And not only that, if this is the redemption section and Exodus is, a, is the book, historical book that speaks of the physical redemption of Israel from bondage in Egypt, then why didn't, did Exodus use Elohim or did Exodus use Jehovah? Like he's given us this division. He really wants to stick to the division, but he's not articulating how this division really holds out to what we find in these sections. So this is one of those things that I get nervous where it sounds like I'm getting a system being imposed upon the text, not just the text. Now, it's a great observation to go. In this section of Psalms, Elohim is used this many times, Jehovah. That's a good, good observational fact. But the observation doesn't go with the self-imposed division he placed upon the book. And then he just threw in 
The, the Great Tribulation? Well, wait a minute. Are you saying this section has something to do with the Great Tribulation? Are you jumping that far? Are you saying this contains prophecy about the Great Tribulation? How, how did you get there? I, I, I'm, I'm now curious to see where this is going. First part of it, for sure. Now, we have, therefore, quite an outline here. You have in these three opening psalms of this Exodus section, it's the time of the Great Tribulation. The book of Exodus opens with the... Whoa, 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 whoa. So the Exodus section begins with the Great Tribulation? I am so perplexed here. Wait a minute. If Wouldn't it start with... Uh, it, <laughs> So it's the Exodus section, but it really deals with the Great Tribulation. So it's the Exodus section, but it really is not about the suffering that they're enduring at the time of their captivities, whether in Babylon or Assyria. It's really dealing with the Great Tribulation period. Now, has anyone ever read Psalm 42, 43, and 44 and like, Great Tribulation, Great Tribulation? Now, is that, is that derived from the text or is this being read into it by a system? Now, see, when I was a young Christian, I would have just been taking notes. Boom, 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 boom. Not realizing I could be possibly getting a sit. I would just be like, oh, this is good. This is the Genesis section. This is the Exodus section. Boom. I would be writing it down, taking notes. And then the first time I got a chance to preach, I'd be like, the book of Psalms is broken down into five sections, just like the, the five books of the Pentateuch. This is the Genesis section, the Exodus. And I would just recite that, right? And I would do so in an authoritative way and hopefully make it sound good, add my own little twist to it. And be like, yeah, I, but wait a minute. I, I would just be regurgitating a system. I would not be deriving that from deep exegetical study of the text of my own. And so much of preaching is pastors simply regurgitating the system that they were taught, the commentaries they read, or the sermons that they have listened to, or the books in which they have read. And that is a problem. So I'm already I'm already blown away that we're somehow 42 and following. I guess 42. This is the Great Tribulation. I, I am I am definitely trying to follow this. Let's see where this goes. Children of Israel in Egypt, a Pharaoh over them, and we have in this section the Antichrist is certainly there, and we are going to follow right on through. We see in Psalm 43 the mention of the Antichrist, and they are mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. And then... I know I keep breaking this up, but I'm just blown away here. So, 42 through 40... 40 I guess I, I, I keep saying 41. 42. If I say 41, I apologize. 42 through 44. 43, the Antichrist is mentioned? And that this is the Great Tribulation? Oh, man. Oh, I, I almost want to stop right here and, and tell everyone, let's just stop and read. Your assignment is to read Psalm 42 through 44 to see if you see this. But I want to, I want to try to get as, as far. We, we may not finish this entire review, but this, this serves as, and I'm thankful for the person who emailed me because you're right. This does serve as kind of a good example of what I'm talking about. This is where your system is guiding your interpretation. It is directing it. It becomes your hermeneutic. And this is what we can't.
cannot allow to happen. I don't care if you're covenant. I don't care if you're dispensation. I don't care what your system is. I don't care if it's lordship, amillennialism, premillennialism. I don't care what it is. You can't allow it to guide it. You can't. All right. What you have to do is try to go to the text. Now you may then from the text going, I don't know what to do here. And then you may look at all the systems and go, I think this system works, but just admit where you're getting it from. All right. So, so let's, let's, uh, let's see where this goes. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated at this point. I'm fascinated. So let, let's see. I don't, maybe you are as well. I, I, I'm hopefully this has got your interest and hopefully this is serving as a perfect example of what the emailer said that it was, that this is going to be very beneficial for us, but let's see where this goes. We find them crying out to God to deliver them and then deliverance come to them. And in that 45th Psalm, we have the great millennial Psalm of the Lord Jesus coming to reign on the earth. Whoa. So this is the Exodus section. Okay. But 42 through 44 is the great tribulation and 45 is the millennial. It's the millennium kingdom. Wow. (laughs) Wow, 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 wow. Okay. All right. Oh, I almost want to start testing this hypothesis right now. I want to, I'd like, oh, if I was at church right now, I'd be like, okay, everyone, for the next six months, this is what we're, we're going to test this. We're going to test this. We're going to test this. We're going to, we're going to work this every way possible. We're going to try every way possible. So I know I can't, I can't do that now. I can't because we're right in the middle of our series on dispensationalism. So we can't do that now, but this is a great example of clearly dispensationalism is guiding his hermeneutic here. It has to be. Now, maybe he's going to be able to prove how he see how this text leads to dispensationalism. It's not as dispensationalism being read into the text. I don't think he's going to articulate that or even prove that. He's just operating from that presupposition. Just operating from that presupposition. And I've seen this played out by people from every theological system. They'll, they'll read a text going, don't you see infant baptism? It's right there. And I'm like... What are you talking about? I don't see it at all. It's clear. And I'm like, okay, well, I think maybe you're reading your system into it. And But they may say the same thing. Well, well, how can you not see it? You're reading your system into it. The thing is, we all have to be aware of how we could be reading our system into the text. And guess what? Sometimes you may have to just admit, you know what? I really don't know if the scripture is supporting my system. You still may want to hold on to your system That's your choice, but you may want to admit when scripture doesn't really back up your system as much as you think it does. And so on, and we'll call attention to that as we go through. I think there are two things today that are quite important for God's people to see. One is that the primary and fundamental interpretation of these Psalms is applicable to the nation Israel, and it looks to the future and the time of trouble. This will be meaningful for them. Okay, now I got no problem saying 
42 through 44 or 42 through 45 should be interpreted first and foremost to the nation of Israel. I got no problem with that. I, I, I think that that is a fundamental hermeneutical point. I think it, and then the reason I derive that is not even from a system. Just start reading. Israel, 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 Judah, Judah, you know, Samaria, Ephraim. You just go on and on and on. The text demands it. Nations are mentioned all over the place and over and over. It's about God's dealing with Israel and Judah, the, the king, having a kingdom, divided kingdom, these all wanting a king to rule over them. Over, I mean, there's no way to get around that. You would just have to be blind to it. So whenever you come to these texts, I don't, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, your first and foremost should be like, okay, what is this saying to the to Israel? Because they would have been the original recipients in some way, shape, or form, whether in captivity, before captivity, after captivity. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. That's what you always have to do in the Old Testament. Who is this? Who is this directed to? The north or the south? Okay, which king is ruling and reigning at the time? Is that prophet going to the northern kingdom or to the southern kingdom? So I, so there I agree. And you say, well, that's dispensationalism. I don't care if you say it's dispensationalism. To me, that's just the text demanding. I think you need to pay attention to Israel. And you can try to say, no, Israel's not Israel. Now that's your system reading into the text because there's nothing in the text would say, well, that's not really the nation. That's the church. Give me a break. So I do agree here. This part I agree with. And I don't, and see, I'm not worried whether it agrees with a system or don't agree with the system. That's just the Bible demanding. When I'm in the Old Testament, Israel and Judah, whether divided or Israel as a, as a unified kingdom, they have to get the, the focus here. Now he says it looks to the future. It's prophetic. That's, that we'll have to test. All right. So let's see what else he has to say. And that is something I think that we need to note and need to mark down. And therefore, we need to be very careful sometimes when we lift a verse out of the Psalms, just how does it apply to us? And I think it's all applicable to us today. And I believe that in this section, many of God's children that are in trouble today can find real solace and comfort. And these Okay, now I'm going to disagree. <laughs> now I'm going to disagree because I'm not bound by a system. I don't think many of the verses in the Psalms are applicable. I think some of them are specific promises for Israel. And some of the promises are specifically promises that relate to the covenant that was made with them and the covenant promises. And I don't think you could just rip some of these out of context and go, oh, see, God promised this for me and God promised. No, obviously not, because those things don't happen for many people. They're not protected. They die. They get a disease. No. And in many cases, this is, these were, these were conditional promises for the nation of Israel under the covenant agreement where it says, if you do this, you live, you're blessed. I'll do this. I'll feed you. I'll do this. I'll protect you. And if you don't do this, you're going to die which we see that they violated over and over and over and they suffer, 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 suffer because, well, ultimately any, any agreement that requires something of people to obey God's law, they're going to fall short. Therefore, they're going to need a new covenant where God will do everything for them on the basis of grace and mercy based on the finished work of Jesus Christ and his imputed righteousness. 
So I, I think you've got to be very careful when you lift verses out of the Psalms to supposedly give people great comfort. You may be taking something that's not ever intended to give them any comfort, and you may be giving them a promise that is not a promise, because you may give them a promise from a Psalm, and they'll be like, I'm going to claim that promise, and <laughs> that's not for you. And so when it doesn't happen, then you got to explain how this promise wasn't fulfilled for them. Didn't you tell them because they didn't do enough good stuff? What do you do? I'll never forget. September the 11th, 2001. You'll never forget it either, right? Remember the terror attacks on the United States, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon? Remember the planes crashing into the buildings? Remember the, the chaos? I don't know where you were. I was in the United States military. And at, and it was total chaos, especially when the, when the attacks first started. It was just total chaos. I could tell the story. But at some point, I'm placed in front of the hospital as a guard to the building. And I've got to, I've got to be, I, we've got all these rules of what we're supposed to do. So people are trying to come into the building. Why people are coming to the hospital to pick up their medications. I'm like, do you, do you not see that America's under attack? Maybe they felt like I need to get their medic, my medication because I'm going to run out. I don't know, but it just felt crazy. I'm like, go home and be with your family. Don't be here. But okay. But I digress, but I'm standing there guarding the hospital and someone walks up to me and is like, did you, you know, you, you know, and for some weird reason, they asked me, do you know what's going on? I'm like, yeah. That's why I'm standing out here guarding the hospital. But yes, I know what's going on. And they said, and they gave me a psalm. I don't remember what psalm. And they're like, you, you need to read this. And I was like, well, thank you very much. And I think when I looked at the psalm, I'm like, I don't think that has anything to do with me standing in front of this building on September the 11th, 2001. I think that psalm has something to do with the nation of Israel and whatever year that it was applicable. Okay, but... You know, I didn't, I didn't have a theological dispute with them at the time because I wouldn't even, I just needed them to, I needed to uh, look at the things they were carrying into the building. I needed to verify IDs and I needed to do, and I needed them to get away from me because I needed to make sure that the hospital was safe. All right. But that, the point is, is that that's a good example of someone just grabbing, Hey, a national tragedy is happening. Here's a Psalm, quote it. We saw the same thing during the pandemic, people quoting one of the Psalms. And it's like, that has nothing to do with this situation. Nothing, nothing. It's not for you. So there, I don't believe it's all applicable. I, I think that's ridiculous. There are parts of the Bible that are not applicable to you. They were applicable to specific people in a specific histor historical setting for a specific, specific situation. Don't be claiming promises that don't belong to you. All right. Okay. So you see how I can agree and disagree? Because see, I'm not beholden to a system. See? So I think just anyone reading the Bible would be like, I don't know if I can claim that promise because I don't think that has anything to do with me. And I know that the promise is not a, a definitive promise because I see people all around me are Christians who these things are not happening for. So then how, what do I do with that? All right. Let's continue. Psalms, therefore, ought to be more meaningful to God's children. I believe that we need to look in this section more. Now you have in this section, therefore, the ruin and redemption of Israel actually in the last days. And we're going to find that David doesn't write as many of the Psalms here. Nineteen of them he wrote, and seven of the Psalms were written by the sons of Korah. And all of them are prophetic pictures of Israel in the last days. Now, with that. Please know he's just dogmatically asserting all of them are a picture of Israel in the last days. Israel in the last days. Israel in the last days. 
And I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think this is, is this the system being used as the hermeneutic? Kind of a preliminary to this study, we come to Psalm 42, which is the heart cry of the remnant in the last days, the great tribulation period. And it's applicable to the redeemed of all ages. Now, will you notice as we get into this section, and by the way, I ought to add something else here. This would deliver us from this terrible thing of excluding Israel from the plan and purpose of God for the future, in which it's booked so large in the Word of God. It's almost like writing off a certain portion of the Word of God and saying, yes, I believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures, but what I mean are the Scriptures that apply to me. And if they apply to some other people, especially if I'm not too much concerned about them, I don't think that's the Word of God other than as I apply it to myself. I feel like that that's a grave danger today on the part of many. Now you have in Psalm 42 the future suffering of the godly during the great tribulation period. Okay, I want you to see he's just asserting it. Like it's just an assertion. This is to me eisegesis. He's, he's reading a system into the text. I know that may not be the technical, technical, technical definition of eisegesis, but it is. Eisegesis is where you read into the text. I want it to be understood as reading a system, a presupposition into the text. He just keeps asserting this is the suffering of, well, he says the remnant or of Israel in the great tribulation. And it's just like, where are you getting this? Is this the suffering of someone under the Great Tribulation? Or is this the suffering of people at that time? Maybe Babylonian captivity, Assyrian, maybe Israel. Like it's something more dealing with a historical reality than a supposed future reality. I'm going to give him just a couple of more minutes here and we're going to have to stop this. But this is serving as a great example of what we've been talking about. And uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Let's just see how far we can get here. Now, you remember they were down in the land of Egypt. God first redeemed them by blood. The night that the death angel went over and the blood was on the doorpost, it was redemption by blood and the Passover lamb was offered. But there's a second phase of redemption and that was at the Red Sea and that is redemption by power. And here you have, by the way, that redemption before us, the redemption at that time. Now, these people are away from their land, and this is the remnant of Israel. And another thing, my, I'm putting in a lot of introduction here, but I think this is important to understand these psalms. Another, I think, very wonderful thing for us to see is that though these psalms have a wonderful application for you and me, that we need to recognize that it is primarily for the remnant. But when we say the remnant, we don't mean the whole nation. There are these two things we need to keep in mind. When you say Israel, the chosen people, you're always talking about the remnant, not the nation as a whole. And friends, when you say the church, what do you mean? All of these denominations and churches and you add up the role, and that's the church? No, my friend, I don't think so. The 
church is made up of the body of believers that are in Christ, and they don't get there by having their names put on a church roll or joining a church or going through a ceremony, but a personal relationship to Christ. So we ought to always make a distinction between the organized church, the outward church, visible church, as it's generally called, and the invisible. And I always said the invisible church was invisible too much on Sunday nights and in the middle of the week. And a great many people thought that was the invisible church. But the invisible church is visible, I think, when you're studying the Word of God. I used to say that the Word of God is a Geiger counter. You want to know whether there is uranium in them thar hills, friends, you use a Geiger counter. Now, if you want to know whether a person is genuine, put the Word of God down on them. And I found out if they're not, nothing will happen. But if they become interested in the Word of God and that little arrow on that Geiger counter just begins to jump up and down, they want to know the Word of God. I say there's uranium and there's really a born-again child of God. Okay, that gets to our law and gospel thing, because now you're going to test people's salvation based on how interested they are in God's word. That is that is just, oh boy. Like, So how much interest must one have in order to prove salvation? And when is salvation proven? See, it's proven by how much interest you have in God's word. My salvation is not proven by how much interest I have in God's word. My salvation is proven by the finished work of Jesus Christ because I'm saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness is imputed into me. So if you're going to prove that my salvation is proven by my interest in God's word, well, then I will say, look at how interested Jesus was in the word of God. Therefore, then that his obedience to this demand is imputed to me. Therefore, it's perfect. Therefore, I'm saved. So I, it's just, it's a ridiculous, a, a ridiculous concept. But he keeps saying Psalm 42 is about this future event. Just so that you know, if you do just a quick Google search for the historical context of Psalm 42, Almost without fail, you're going to read something like this. Psalm 42 through chapter four, chapter 42, verse one to chapter 43, verse five. These are teaching Psalms from David. He wrote them when his son Absalom defected uh, from David. We learn that hope is most alive when everything seems hopeless. Some may, some may say that this, uh, because of this defection, because of what was going on, David was prevented from possibly going to the temple. He was prevented from actually going to Jerusalem. So that, that this has nothing to do with the great tribulation as J. Vernon McGee is Im- imposing onto the text because he's reading a system. I don't know if it comes from dispensationalism or not. I don't know. Now, I have no problem saying this may relate to Israel, there may be some very much that goes beyond David, but I think first and foremost, um, you know, we, 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 this seems to possibly be a reference, um, yeah, to David. I mean, I think as, as many will say, but you, well, you, you can, you, you can go, you can look at it for yourself to d- draw your, your own conclusions, but read Psalm 42 through 44 over, you know, 42 through 45, just read it and just see what you see. Just read, just and do you see that this is the great tribulation and four and 43, the antichrist is found and 45 is the millennium. Just, just you read it and see what you find. We'll go just a little bit further and we have to stop because we're already over an hour. Ah, I always, reviews always go longer than I want, but let's see if we can get this a little further. I think you'll find that to be a good rule to follow so that 
We are talking now about the remnant. And here's another masculine psalm in Psalm 42. That means a psalm of understanding, a psalm of teaching, and it's of the sons of Korah. Now, you will recall that Korah led a rebellion, and he was a great-grandson of Levi. And actually, God executed him on account of the rebellion he led against Moses and Aaron. But you see, that didn't fall on his sons. And God made it very clear back in the book of Numbers that his sons did not die. And therefore, they are to stand alone. Now here, they are the ones that wrote these psalms. And they're quite wonderful. Now will you notice that we have here... Now, did they write them or are they for them? Did they write them or are they for them? Some say he wrote them. Everything I'm saying is for the sons of Korah. I, 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 huh, huh, huh. There seems to be some disagreement here, but okay, okay. We, I, 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 he, he doesn't, he, see, he just makes assertions, and this is what happens in a lot of pre, a lot of preaching is just pastor standing behind pulpits making assertions instead of dealing with all, and I know he's doing a program where he's trying to go through the entire Bible in five years, so I know he doesn't have the luxury. Now, I, I make no I think there's no excuse for pastors doing this nonsense where they just stand and just make an assertion, make an assertion of saying, hey, guys, look, we got to deal with these Psalms. We're in this new section and there's a lot of controversy here, right? There's a lot. There's this interpretation. There's this interpretation. We're going to struggle with all the interpretations. We're going to test each one and we're going to struggle through it. We're going to work through it and it may take us a long time. But you know why you don't do that? Because people were like, I just want a sermon. I just want a sermon, meaning they don't want to actually study the text, which, of course, I'm done with that entire game. And I think there's got to be some places that offer something different for people. But I digress. So let's let's see what is oh, he's making so many assertions here. I don't even know where <laughs> I don't even know where to start. But OK, well, obviously, I can't really do much. But but what I'm trying to demonstrate to you, the whole reason we're doing this, this is just an exercise to demonstrate to you. I don't care what system you hold to. Stop letting your system dictate and guide your hermeneutic. And this may be an example. I don't even know if this is a true example of dispensationalism and guiding his interpretation, but something is guiding his interpretation. And I I don't know. Wow. I I don't know what he's doing here, but let's continue. This prophetic picture now, the great tribulation period. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, I don't want to go back to Egypt again. I want to look to the future because this will be a time when these people will be out of the land again. And there's the belief of several Bible expositors today, and they are quite excellent, by the way. I couldn't hold a light to any one of them. They believe that the present regathering of Israel in the land may eventuate in their dispersion again, and that they'll be put out of the land again, maybe in our day. I do not know that, but I want to say this, 
the godly remnant is out of the land, and very few of them will be back in the land. And today, you find in that land two groups. You find what we would call the Orthodox Jew, looking for their Messiah, expecting him to come, wanting the temple rebuilt. Then you find another group that are not particularly concerned with that at all. They say those days are past. We're moving in a new era, and we have Egypt to contend with and the United Nations and so on and so forth. And the Arabs are today our big problem and all of that. May I say to you that the godly remnant of these people will have a longing for God. Now, this is a picture I always give of David. It's a good picture of him. I think it's been a good picture of God's people any time. And I think David could have easily have said this, lying up in the cave and looking out over the valley. And as he did, he hears the hunters and the barking of the dogs. And in a few minutes, there is a rustle in the bushes and David's men become alert that are on guard duty. And then that breaks through into the little opening by the spring there at the mouth of this cave in which David is this little animal, this little deer, and the little deer is foaming at the mouth, so thirsty, and the little sides are lathered and foamed, and he plunges his little head down in the water, takes a good deep drink, and then waits a moment, and the head goes down again. And therefore, the psalmist could say, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after the old God. Is that the way you feel about him today? Uh, we hear so much, well, if you become very legalistic, keep the Ten Commandments, you're pleasing to God. My friend, man's alienated from God. He needs more than the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments just shows we're sinners, but we're alienated in rebellion against God. We not only have no desire for him, we have no capacity. This is a baffling approach to this text. On one hand, he almost obliterates the historical, says it's supposedly about the Great Tribulation. He has not even articulated how it's supposedly about the Great Tribulation. And next thing you know, it's about me and you. (laughs) What is going... I don't even know if this is a good example of how one system... (laughs) Uh, impacts your interpretation. I think this is an example of someone so obliterating the text that I don't know. I know this is how people preach it because, I mean, when I was a young preacher, I would have preached it the same way. As a heart penteth after the water books, so penteth my soul after thee, O God. When was the last time you desired God like a young deer desiring water who's been hunted? When was the last? Oh, you don't. There's a problem. Why don't we long for God's word this way? Because and then I would give three or four reasons. And how can we create a, a proper desire for God? And I would give three or four reasons. And and like it, it would be, you know, it would be very much like a how-to kind of manual and a convicting kind of thing. And people would be like, hey, man, great sermon because you had your three little points or your, your, or your two major points or whatever the case may be. And it would be just your typical sermon. The only problem is I didn't do it. I didn't actually deal with the text in any more of a meaningful way. I preached a sermon. When sermons get, oh, sermons typically obliterate the actual meaning of the text. And Christians want sermons. They don't want to deal with the text. If you deal with this text, it would be like, well, wait a minute. This may not have anything to do with us. Who is the person 
As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Is there a clear, do we have any idea? I don't think this is Israel during the tribulation period. I don't think it has anything to say about that. Is this a reference to the nation in general? Is this a reference to a time when the nation had been taken into captivity and could not get to the temple? Most believe this is not a reference to that. Most believe this would be a reference to, because then you could say, when was it written? Well, if we know the historical time in which it's written, then we could look at what historical events this could be referencing. J. Vernon McGee is going immediately to the future. I don't know if there's anything in the text that demands I go to the future because it's being spoken of as a present reality. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Not only is it not, it's not, doesn't seem to be national, doesn't seem to be a, 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 community. It seems to be an individual. Well, many believe the individual here is David. Absalom Absalom has defected. David is now cut off and he can't go to the temple. And now he is, he's lamenting to God in his condition. And he says, my tears have been my meat day and night while they continually say unto me, where is thy God? Now, is he crying day and night? Not only because he can't get to the temple, but maybe because his son has defected, possibly. When I remember the things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept the holidays. He remembers when he used to be able to go to the temple. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down with me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites and the hill Mazar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night... And in the night, his song shall be with me and my prayer unto God of my life. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword, as with a sword in my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say daily unto me, where is thy God? Why art thou cast, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Uh, hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. This sounds like someone going through a very, 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 very difficult situation. Many relate it to David and what's happening with him and Absalom. He's cut off from the temple and he's struggling with these emotions. On one hand, he doesn't know why he's, he's, he's frustrated and doesn't understand. On the other hand, he's trying to tell himself to trust in God. Is there some principles that may be applicable to us? I don't know what that has to do with the Great Tribulation. And I don't know why you would apply this to the Great Tribulation unless you have some cross-reference that uses Psalm 42 that would be a reference that seems to be only applied to the Great Tribulation. This is an example of... uh, I don't know what, I don't even know what to call this. I don't know if this is an example of his dispensationalism or if this is just a, I don't know what this is. This is an example of a crazy hermeneutic. So I would challenge you do a little work and see what, where people, what, what the historical setting most commentaries do with Psalm 42 and see if they make more sense than saying this is dealing with the great tribulation. 
All right, we're going to have to stop there. We're going to have to stop there. All right. This, th- but this is good because what is happening is we're talking about dispensationalism and immediately people are going, hey, here's an example because I talked about this where a system begins to guide and control your hermeneutic. And whenever any system does that, that's a bad thing. I don't care if it's dispensationalism, covenant. I don't care what the system is. And listen, every one of you, including me, we all have our systems. We got to be willing to acknowledge when our systems are influencing us and do everything we can to resist it. All right. That took us, oh, we didn't get all the way there. We did not get all the way there. But we'll just leave it there and we'll see what the reactions are to this. All right. I can't wait to get your feedback. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. A couple of things. One, if you ever want to support us, theologycentral.net, hit the donate tab. Uh, Church One, give tab. Sermons 2.0, look us up, the give tab. We really appreciate it. Even if, look, we're looking just for people to just support us. $5 a month would be helpful. Now, with all of that said, if you have not gone to the beta website today, the Sermon Audio beta website, go to beta.sermonaudio.com, beta.sermonaudio.com. They now have a section for webcast, and uh, you can see, well, some interesting new things going on there, and uh, hopefully you will find it uh, to be beneficial. So check that out today. All right, there we go. Um, let's see here. We had people listening to us in South Dakota. We had people listening to us in Indiana. We had people listening to us in North Carolina. And we had people listening to us in Texas. Thank you for all the people who are listening to us in all of those areas. We greatly appreciate it. You can always email me, newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Everyone have a great night. And uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens with this. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.